Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Hello and welcome. On today's episode, I'm joined by Bob Hayes, a strategic advisor to Occamsec. Hi, Bob. Uh, welcome and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Um, perhaps we could start with uh, a little background intro. Hi, Davin, and uh, thanks for uh, the opportunity to be here today. So my background is I spent 30 years working for the UK government. So I started off uh, in law enforcement. So I was a cop and uh, moved towards uh, investigation and covert investigation. So I led the UK's response to, for example, some animal rights terrorism. Uh, I was a hostage negotiator and then I moved into British intelligence and I ran a thing called the UK's National Technical Assistance Centre um, before leaving government and joined a part of Microsoft called the Institute for Advanced Technology and Government, which was something that uh, had been set up by Bill Gates after the 9-11 attacks. And I worked in a global role, so all around the world, talking to lots of governments and non-governmental organizations about how to use innovation, how to think about security, and how to get the best out of the technology that they already owned. It's a great role. It wasn't part of the profit and loss part of the company, so we had a right to roam. I did that. That role migrated into uh, enterprise cybersecurity when the company reorganized. Uh, I was part of the team that set up Microsoft's enterprise cybersecurity group. And I ended up as Microsoft's uh, Enterprise Cybersecurity Advisor for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Then when I hit 60, I always had a life plan that I didn't want to work full time anymore. So I left Microsoft and have what is now grandly called a small portfolio of advisory roles where I sit on some boards for some public sector organizations, some private sector ones, and I advise some organizations, and Occamsec is one of them. So hence why I'm sitting here today. Well, thanks, Bob. I mean, that's a very impressive resume. And um, thanks for sharing that with our audience. So, Bob, we have a, often have an icebreaker question for guests on, on uh, here at Burned by the Firewall. So uh, what is your favorite piece of childhood technology? Well, I'm probably older than most of your other guests, uh, Davin. Um, there wasn't that much technology. I remember, I remember being really impressed to see when color came on television, when you could watch snooker and actually understand what was going on because all the <laughs> balls weren't gray. Um, so I suppose in terms of, I'm going to have to be older than childhood. The bit of tech I think that probably changed my life more than anything else was actually the Walkman because it, it gave me the ability to do something that I couldn't really do before, which was listen to music anywhere I wanted to be without bothering other people. So I was far from a child when that came in, but that would be the thing that I would probably highlight. And I've got to say, I think that's a fantastic choice. Although I did have a Walkman when I was a child, but uh, at least you didn't say Betamax video. <laughs> <laughs> which most people on this listening to this probably won't know what that is anyway. <laughs> so for today's episode, um, we thought we'd discuss the solar winds attack. Obviously in the news at the moment, a lot of people are just discussing how it happened and the impact, but um, 
from your angle, I think it'd be really interesting to discuss how these types of attacks are planned, what is considered and what this means for the organisations. Yeah, sure. And I think that is a really important thing to stop and pause about because from listening to the buzz around SolarWinds, hear loads of organisations who say, oh, thank goodness that could never happen to us. But actually understanding a little bit more about how intelligence operations are planned and who might be planning them and what they might be thinking about, in my experience, quite often makes organisations have a rethink about that and think, well, perhaps we could be a target. And in which case, there are probably some things they should be doing that they're not doing. So let's sort of start right back from, you know, from the basics of this, any intelligence operation will start off with a strategic intelligence requirement. And that's a really grand name, but it's someone going, hey, I need to know something because of. And so it would be to say, okay, for what it is, and let's assume it's a nation state for a moment. So a nation state may be thinking about, hey, we need to know this stuff because it will give us economic gain. Or we need to know this stuff because we're about to go into a multi-nation treaty. It'd be really good to know what everyone else is negotiating position on so we know how far we can go. Or you may just be thinking, hey, so-and-so country's got an election coming up. We'd actually quite like this particular outcome. And knowing more about what the party's positions are will help our influencing ops. Or you may just be thinking... We're thinking about military action against this company, and what would be really good would be to understand what's going on there as a precursor to military action. So there's all sorts of reasons why a nation state would want intelligence on another state or an entity. And we can talk a little bit later in the podcast, Avin, about organized crime groups and how they may be thinking, because there's some subtle differences, but some similarities. So you start off by going through, this is an intelligence requirement that we have. And then it's a question of, okay, so what are our options to do this? And here there'll be conversations with usually that country's intelligence um, organizations. And that's complicated as well, because some countries have interesting relations with organized crime groups. So you may find some attacks that actually are coming from nation state may be vectored through an organized crime group. And there are a number of reasons for that. The first is the organized crime group may actually have better capability. The second is it doesn't have make it much easier to deny anything that you had anything to do with it if it's got the fingerprints of organized crime on it. You may think about your in-house capabilities, or you may think about, well, we can't do that, but we have a friend who might be another company, country, it may be an organization who does have particular access. And that might be about geography. It's about, well, we don't have a presence in that part of the world, but our friends do. It might be that your friends have particular capabilities in certain areas, or It may be that your friends have better human intelligence in an area than you, i.e. to use the good old James Bond phrase, they may have agents in place and you don't have agents in place. So there's all sorts of sharing that goes on as part of who could do this for us. And then you'll start thinking about an options appraisal. 
And this is a sounds a really commercial term, but it's so what's the return on investment in this? And in part, that's about every organization, whether it's a government, an organized crime group, or even just a single issue group will come up when they will either buy or develop their own exploits that they'll use in terms of things like cyber attacks. And I will just make the observation here that no Intel organization will use any better exploit than it needs to. So if you are the target and your organization, and my reconnaissance shows that you're really poor at patching or you're running a really old infrastructure, then rather than go to the cupboard and get out my best shiny exploit that either I've taken ages to develop or it's cost me a lot of money to buy, I'm just going to go and download a commodity exploit and use that instead. Firstly, it will get the job done. And secondly, if it is later discovered, it doesn't look like a nation state zero day attack. If it's just someone who's used an attack that was patched 10 years ago by Microsoft, but this particular organization never got around to doing it. And the, the part about deniability and obfuscation is really important. If you want not to be seen, and I'll come back to why I say that in a minute, then actually one of the things you'll be thinking about is how can this look like something else? So I'll give an example. When I was running intelligence ops, the last thing we ever wanted to do was let the source of our intelligence get out. So we would spend as long thinking about how else we could get that information as we did about how we actually got it. So an example would be, we may have had a, a wonderful technical source, or we may have had a human who was informing on their friends, and we would have information that enabled us to say, okay, there's going to be a lorry full of drugs going up the, this particular motorway at this particular time. Actually, to have a traffic roadblock miraculously appear on the motorway at that time. And just luckily, as part of a random stop on that road check, they find that truck and they find the drugs. Well, it's much easier to say, well, okay, that's some really good bit of police work from a cop rather than actually we knew exactly where that was going to be. Which brings me to probably the one thing that I want everyone out of this to think about. When I first got into the intelligence space, people said to me, there is one big secret, the biggest secret we have. And Davin, I'm now going to share that big secret with you. Please do, Bob. Because I trust you. The big secret is we want people to think we can do what we can't do and that we can't do what we can do. And that's a really good filter to look at what you hear in the world that governments will often take that perspective of whatever information you have that you want people to think the opposite of the reality. And so all of the options appraisal piece will then be filtered through a political dimension. And it's we have a really good example at the moment of two different nation states who have a very different view of what that looks like. So Russia at the moment appear to be doing cyber attacks that get noticed. And it almost appears that they want them to get noticed. And you could make other links to things like the Novichok attacks, where there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of real denial of those that people believe. And you have China, on the other hand, who really do want to be stealthy. 
So sometimes your political position is, actually, we don't care about deniability. We sort of want to know that people can know they do this, either to deter other people or to just show we're a power. Or you may want to be, your position may want to be you really don't want to be associated with this attack, in which case you'll put all sorts of measures in place that will either get somebody else the blame or that you can just say, well, that can never be attributed to us. And out of all that options appraisal, ultimately, there will be a decision, yep, we are going to take this option, we're going to do this attack, we're going to aim to get this information, these are the measures, checks and processes we're going to put in place, this is how it's going to be technically achieved, and this will be how we'll review it in terms of the success otherwise. Now, coming back to what I said about so what does that mean for organizations? Well, bear in mind that yours may be an organization that fits some of that criteria. You may not think you're a classic target for economic gain, but you may actually be a conduit for information for, say, a political party. You may hold information from tenders. You may service international organizations who may be part of governments, tenders, and treaties all of which means you can be the vector for that attack. So from my point of view, more people rather than less people should be bothered about this, not about solar winds particularly, but bothered about how they could be a target for attack in this. And that's a really long answer to a very short question, Davin. So I'm now gonna pause for breath. But I guess talking about the attribution, I mean, we see a lot of, I guess, malware is attributed to, to Russia because it contains this piece of code. But by the same token that you've just mentioned, it could just be as well that someone said, I'm going to take this bit of code, make it look like it's that, right? And then just wrap it into my own piece of code. But there's enough in there to point at the finger over there. Yeah, I, I mean, it is difficult. There is, you know, most people don't, deliberately put a trademark on something unless they want it to be found. And, you know, just like any commercial software process, if this is something that is either used or developed by a government, it's likely they've done a code review on it and they would scrub anything that they think would make it uh, make it identifiable unless they wanted to leave a clue in there. Now, here's the here's the conundrum. Because again, using my big filter of, remember, the first rule of secrecy is always wanting the people to think you can do what you can't do and you can't do what you can. So if you find something that's an identifiable factor, what does that actually mean? And the answer is it could mean in any number of things, but don't always jump to the obvious conclusion of what it's saying to you. Yeah, and I guess this is why there are so many known ATP groups out there with their various signatures because some could be a nation state some could be an organized crime group and yet because there's more in the space it's almost better for everyone because you know attribution is just so difficult and also you know it isn't binary either there there are blends and you know public governments go into partnership sometimes with groups that aren't in the government if that's where the capabilities are and if you think about organized crime groups you know crime as a service is has been a reality for some years uh, and a really good example of that was the attack against the target supermarket group in the US probably where are we 3 4 years ago now 
where one organized crime group actually developed the exploit that got into target as point of sale system, but they didn't have the ability to execute on that exploit. So they effectively outsourced the execution of the exploit to a second group. And then once the exploit had been actioned, that was the money was generated by yet another group who actually coordinated the use of cash points and other things to actually realize the financial gain from it. So you had three almost specialist groups within an organized crime infrastructure that worked together to attack. And that isn't unknown when there's a blend between public and private sector as well, particularly in some parts of the world. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. And I guess saying that many attacks are conducted by organized groups, and it's probably a more global thing than we would realize now, I guess with the internet it is global. It's not, it's not necessarily, I'm in a location. I can be anywhere. Some parts of the world tend to develop a reputation for particular types of crime, let's say. So, you know, the Western Africa um, was always seen as the area that fraud email or fraud to start with letters, then there became faxes and now fraud emails in terms of um, people for either dating scams or investment scams. Um, and other parts of the world have developed capabilities. And it's interesting with Africa, particularly when the fiber network actually joined all of Africa together, it brought a huge number of people onto the internet. A number of people there who had good education, but very little prospects of work. And organized crime was one viable way of actually making money. And the difficulty as well there is that in Africa, the law enforcement agencies' capabilities tend to be less good. And there is good evidence that uh, organized crime groups will move to places where the law enforcement uh, infrastructure isn't good, or will move to places where they think law enforcement will be less likely to target them. And sometimes that about the in the planning process will be thinking about where things are targeted. Going back to my days in Microsoft, we found one particular attack that was specifically programmed so it wouldn't target computers running Cyrillic language as their primary language. And the conclusion we came to is because the group who were doing that didn't want to make a fuss in those areas of the world because as likely as not, that may have been where they were based. I mean, is it worth uh, circling back to the, uh, the solar winds incident? Um, what do you think the impact on government agencies and, and the financial sectors might be going forward? I think solar winds, if you stand back from it, was an incredibly astute bit of intelligence tasking. And you know, if you now sort of go back to what I talked through earlier. To find a piece of software that you could compromise that was used in government and enterprises all over the world, but was probably flying under the radar. I mean, how many people other than the deep techies in most organizations would know that you had this thing called SolarWinds and what reach it had into your organization? 
So the return on investment of developing what were clearly very capable attacks against solar wind, but because it applied to so many organizations, the return on investment would have been exceptional in intelligence terms. So to me, the question now for organizations is, what else have we got? in our organization that looks and smells a bit like a solar winds, i.e. it's something that's probably in lots of organizations. We don't actually know that much about it, but it's probably got reach and access into our systems in quite an endemic way. My gut feeling is, and I'm, you know, I'm not the expert in the room here, there are going to be other types of things that will have the same ability as solar winds to enable people, again, to make a really good return on investment in intelligence terms on what they've either spent to buy exploits or to develop them themselves. I mean, there will. I mean, uh, across multiple organizations, infrastructures, there are all sorts of small tools that perform basic functions that just get overlooked because they are precisely that they're not particularly glamorous they just do a job and then they're done but i mean in terms of of the trust of the solar wind software because people relate to having a zero trust model but the update for that i'm assuming for in my mind is a trusted was already considered trusted within a model so what what would what, what sort of mitigations do you think people could apply or, or thought patterns should organizations be applying to to try and see that I, i'm going to make sure that there isn't another solar winds in my environment in my experience people talk about zero trust environments where they're not really talking about zero trust environments they're talking about conditional trust environment and and there's quite a difference between the two so a zero trust environment is genuinely that whatever runs on my infrastructure i don't trust it but actually, when you think about that, it's incredibly difficult to do. I mean, Microsoft, uh, obviously, uh, and I'll choose my words carefully here, Microsoft have said that there was some access to part of their source code through the SolarWinds attack, but the, so that source code itself is subject to a release program and is part of zero trust. So... If you could argue that Microsoft are saying, you know, that really was a zero trust environment. In my experience, many organizations actually can't do the whole zero trust thing. So what they'll do is, as you say, Davin, they'll go, well, we trust this stuff over here because we sort of know stuff about it. And then we'll go zero trust for everything else. The, the problem is how good is your understanding about the stuff you're putting in the, well, we'll sort of trust this bucket. Um, because if you, you know, however big an organization you are, you can't do a detailed code review on everything that you run. There are over 50 million lines of code in Microsoft Windows alone. So you, you, to do this properly, you have to make some choices. Um, and I think, you know, my advice would be, and it's the old chestnut of protect, detect and respond. And I really do think, you know, in terms of protection, it is around determining what you have on your system and what levels of trust you can apply to it. And, but being pretty ruthless about that, 
the next part of it is that however good an attack is, solar winds being a good example, it has to do something. It has to make some changes. It has to do something no matter how stealthily. So the better your detection processes, the more likely you will find that attack at a reasonable time. Um, and then obviously the respond is the ability of how you do that. But it is about you know, taking advice from people like OckhamSec about looking at your environment and then saying, okay, for you, this is what good looks like, bearing in mind the type of business you're in, how regulated you are, you know, what are your crown jewels? This is the best way you can protect and detect because that's the best way you'll be immune to the next solar winds and the one after that. The worst thing you can do is the whack-a-mole syndrome of, well, solar winds attack this bit of my system, therefore I'll harden that. Because by now that's it's history. You know, the attackers may already be out there with their next version of solar winds, and it may already be in your organization. So looking at what they did with solar winds is probably exactly the wrong place to be looking. Yep, I guess like bolting the uh, the stable door after the horse is bolted. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so do you have any other closing comments that you wanted to add for our listeners? The, the one thing that I would probably add is if you're thinking about, you know, we talked about nation states and the type of motivation that will affect a nation state. The likelihood for an organized crime group is that their motivation is going to be purely for economic gain. But there are other groups that won't fall into either of those categories. And what I will describe them as is single issue groups. When I, back in my hostage negotiator days, we used to call it offender for cause. That was someone who was either taking hostages or was aiming to do something because they were particularly fired up about a particular issue. And, you know, we can choose any number of them. It could be abortion. It could be animal rights. It could be um, cl climate change. There are groups within all of those where there will be a tiny minority of people who will consider that serious criminality is the right way to go forward and they will hide amongst the noise of the many many people who are entirely legitimate so, uh, supporters of those groups so what are they thinking of well they could just be out to embarrass your organization so if you're an organization running let's say coal-fired power stations then actually the ability to get into your organization, perhaps change your website, perhaps take your systems down, um, may be enough. In fact, perfectly live at the moment, I live in Scotland, the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency was subject to an attack at five minutes past midnight, I believe it was on Christmas day this year. And many of their systems are still offline as we speak. And where are we? That's over a month later. Uh, I don't know the motivation for that attack, but if you think about an environmental protection agency and the work they do, then step back and think, well, who might have an interest in that? Um, it may be to disrupt. It may be to embarrass. It may be as part of your cause to influence people. 
or it may just be to raise the profile of your particular cause to get it onto the front page of tomorrow's newspapers. All of those could be legitimate reasons for planning and targeting attacks that is outside the nation state or organised crime group. Well, thanks, Bob. Some excellent thoughts there. And uh, I guess a good reminder that there can be various motives behind uh, cybercrime. So I think before we finish, um, one question. Uh, is it true that you nearly got run over by a submarine? Well, that actually is true, Davin. Um, I think you know the answer to that already. <laughs> so as one of my lives, uh, I was a, a diver for the police and the training for to be a police diver was part of that training was conducted in Scotland. And uh, I was diving uh, just at the mouth of Holy Lock and Holy Lock is on the west coast of Scotland near Glasgow. But at the time I was doing my training, Holy Lock was also a floating base for nuclear submarines. And the submarines would come in and out of Holy Lock when they were returning or going for the mission. And I was down at about 180 feet, which is about as deep as you can go on air. And you can't just rush up from there. You have to go through decompression stages. And I was talking to people. I had a, you know, communications. And all I could hear was this, getting louder. And people was from the surface said, don't move. Just stay where you are. Stay where you are. And this got louder and louder. Now, to me, I, it felt like this thing was probably only feet away. In reality, and I know it may, it may ruin a good story, it was probably quite a bit further. But in my mind, I nearly got run over by a nuclear submarine. So there you go. That's a fantastic story. I mean, yeah, anything that big, that near to you in the water, I think, uh, you know, definitely scary. <laughs> I'm assuming you had a beer when you got up. Several. <laughs> Awesome. So thank you to Bob. It's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us on Burn by the Firewall. Mm -hmm.